Welcome to the Key Wealth Matters podcast, a series of candid conversations with leading experts about how individuals and organizations can grow and protect their finances, tailored around current events and trends. Here's your host for today's podcast, Brian Peterangelo. Welcome to the Key Wealth Matters weekly podcast, where we casually ramble on about important topics, including the markets, the economy, human ingenuity, and almost anything under the sun, giving you the keys to unlock the mysteries of the markets and investing. Today is Friday, April 29th, 2022. Glad to have you with us. I'm Brian Peterangelo. And with me today, I'd like to introduce our investing experts. Many consider them two of our top draft picks here at Key Private Bank. George Mateo, Chief Investment Officer, and Rajiv Sharma, Head of Fixed Income. As a reminder, a lot of great content is available on key.com slash wealth insights, including updates from our Wealth Institute on many different subjects, and especially our Key Questions article series, addressing a relevant topic for investors each Wednesday. So in terms of a quick recap for the markets and the economy this week, let's give you some information on the markets and then we'll move to an update on the economy. So in terms of the daily fluctuation that we're seeing in the markets, Monday was a really interesting day. The market started off negative in the morning and then ended up rallying for the afternoon to be ending positive about up 0.5% or 1.29%, whether you're looking at the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ. Tuesday, ended up being significantly negative, down about 3% or 4% across the board. Wednesday was flat, and then Thursday we saw the market rally again, up 2.48% on the S&P and up 3.07% on the NASDAQ. The reason we share this information with you is to, again, exemplify the daily volatility that we experience in the market, but also to note that throughout the week, if we look at just Thursday, at the end of that week, we're up about 0.5% across the board, which is positive, but you might not have realized it given the volatility. We've also seen some big earnings releases from some large companies during the week. First, we had a couple that were very positive, and we saw the market react as well. In addition to that, there were some equally as negative, and they offset each other based on some big corporate earnings. So we'll, again, follow the suit that earnings releases continue to be mixed for first quarter of 2022. As we transition to the overall economy, there are probably three things that are worth mentioning. The first is on the manufacturing and the production side of the equation, where we still see positive and expansionary numbers as they were released by the Chicago and Texas uh, feds, but the future outlook continues to be slightly weakened. Secondarily, we've seen durable goods up 0.8% March, month over month, which continues to be expansionary and is also showing us that that number has increased month over month for the past five out of six months, according to the Census Bureau. The second topic worth sharing is about housing. The numbers continue to be mixed as well. Home prices were up 1.7% month over month and 19.8% year over year. However, if you look at the sales in terms of new residential sales and existing home sales, they start to be tempered. For example, new residential sales were down about 9% month over month in March and existing home sales were down about 3% month over month in March. So we're beginning to see some of that inventory that was under Significant pressure because there was significant demand and low supply in housing is now being curtailed a bit, in addition to the effect that rising mortgage rates might have on the overall demand. The third item we're sharing is on real GDP that came out yesterday from the Bureau of Economic Analysis. The annual rate decreased 1.4% for the first quarter of 2022, according to the advance estimate. More detailed data will be provided next month again from the Bureau of Economic Analysis. What are some of the underlying data that support that decline of 1.4%? Not only inventories were down, but government spending and exports were also down. Imports were up a little bit, which is actually a negative. But the positive contribu- contributors to GDP were personal consumption, 
and personal income. On the personal consumption side, we're also seeing significant increases in the services economy relative to the goods economy. So what this story is telling us is that when we've had that delay in the services economy due to COVID lockdowns, we're now getting past that and we're seeing a return to the services economy, which is a very positive sight to see. And to some degree, this has been expected. So if we go back six to nine months when we talked about the fiscal contribution and the fiscal stimulus that the government provided in terms of recovery for COVID-19, there was going to be a time where that was going to end. There was going to be a time that that was going to be called the fiscal cliff and was going to drop off in terms of GDP. So we're now beginning to see that. But we, we look to the future and hope that the next quarter's economy continues to be strong to avoid what some might be referring to as a potential recession in 2022. So considering all these numbers, a lot to consider for the week, George. But if you take all that data in consideration, what do you think some of your insights are? Well, Brian, oftentimes we say it's hard to predict the future and understandably so. I mean, the future is always uncertain, but lately it seems like it's equally hard to accurately describe the present. I mean, we're having a difficult time kind of characterizing where things are right now or even where things have been because some of this information obviously is reported with a lag. I think it's, um, I think it's fair to say that the numbers are going to be really noisy for a while. Um, you talked a little bit about the GDP report, which is, you know, again, a bit of a stale number in the sense that it's capturing the activity that happened in the quarter that ended almost a month ago. Um, but I think you can glean a couple of things. Again, there, there's a lot of moving parts there. As you mentioned, inventories were, were lower, uh, a lot of messy numbers with respect to trade. So that just kind of muddles things up a lot. Um, but the underlying components weren't all bad. Um, it just suggests that consumer spending is still coming along at a pretty good clip. Um, maybe not as strong as it was, that's not surprising. CapEx actually was really quite strong, uh, which often doesn't get as much airplay, but that's something that was also pretty strong. And I think, again, we kind of have this situation where um, maybe at the margin inflation started to peak a little bit. Um, it's probably going to say elevated. So you talked about some, some companies. I mean, I think something that, some of the information might be even more important to read through at the company level. We don't have to name names, but there's some really high-profile companies that talked about uh, the fact that cost pressures, supply chain pressures, are really going to have a pretty big dent in their outlook going forward. I think the market can eventually look through that. I think it's going to be kind of a period of digestion um, because we'll have to reset expectations to some extent. But those things are somewhat analogous to uh, temporary uh, setbacks, you know, things associated with um, natural disasters and so forth. And this is clearly one of those things. But I think at the margin, what it does suggest to me is that inflation is going to be coming down a little bit, but it's going to stay somewhat elevated going forward. And that really introduces probably new opportunities and also new risks for the Fed. So let me pull Rajiv into that and get his thoughts on what happens with the Fed next week, given some of these inflation headlines. Well, thank you, George. Uh, well, once again, we're seeing Treasuries react to the Fed meeting next week and the, the idea that there's going to be an aggressive meeting. Um, it's going to be aggressive rate hike next week, uh, which would be the order of 50 basis points. That's what the market is uh, considering right now and expecting. Um, I think that the economic data that you pointed to keeps that theme alive, and we've seen it in treasuries as well. We see the U.S. yield curve flatten. We see this morning twos and five-year uh, yields have jumped nine to ten basis points. So the market is viewing the economic data as another factor that's going to uh, really enhance the Fed's position of uh, aggressively raising rates to combat inflation. Um, this flattening of the yield curve that we're seeing is already signaling slower growth ahead. Uh, the difference between the two-year and the 10-year Treasury note yield right now is 19 basis points. And we continue to inch closer to that inversion point again. Uh, it'll have a lot to do with the pace of the movement in the front end of the curve. And as we know, the front end of the curve is really dictated by Fed policy. So the Fed, 
they're focused really on the three month and the 10 year spread. And that's around 200 basis points. That gives the Fed the confidence that the US economy can uh, withstand accelerated rate hikes. Uh, the market is pricing it for a greater Fed reaction, and that continues to move the front end of the yield curve higher. It also raises the risk that the Fed could get it wrong. They could overshoot. Uh, if you look at three years now, the curve is very flat. That's telling you that the market's considering the Fed's going to get it wrong. They won't be able to uh, thread the needle. And uh, even though the Fed does not feel that way, the Fed feels that they can do this. And we're going to get a lot more information uh, next week's meeting. Uh, and that's all that the fixed income market is really focused on right now is next week's meeting. The FOMC meeting is going to happen next week. And the attention, again, is going to be back on the pace of the Federal Reserve uh, rate hikes. Um, how fast are they going to do this? Is it going to be 50 basis points, um, which is very likely? Most likely, it's going to be another rate hike that's going to come in June as well to the same order. So if you look at uh, what the market's pricing, it's almost 250 basis points of hikes priced by December. And if you add the 25 basis points hike that we already had in March, we would end up being at the fastest pace of tightening since 1994. And that's why you really see this two year ready to post their ninth consecutive monthly increase. Again, that's the longest stretch of a two year posting monthly increases since the data has been collected back in 1976. And really it is all central banks that are dealing with inflation right now. Even Euro area inflation is causing a bearish move in, in global rates. But this is really dictating the fixed income market. And I think all attention is really on the Fed meeting for next week. It's interesting, Rajiv, that you mentioned 1994. And you know, many people not, might not remember that. But you know, the thing that was kind of interesting in that period of time, and I was just kind of getting started in the business then. But you know, I, I remember that there was a lot of consternation inside the financial market, but the economy stayed pretty strong. Um, you know, the, and what the Fed's trying to do, as you mentioned, with this soft landing concept, uh, try to slow the economy down without causing recession. You know, that's often how we describe a soft landing. And they've kind of baked that into their forecast where I think they've talked about inflation staying high. You mentioned interest rates going up to kind of combat that, uh, but they think inflation, I'm sorry, they think unemployment rather will stay somewhat tame and not really rise to the level of concern. So if you look back in 94 though, however, even though that did actually happen, I mean, they were successful. Um, you're right to note that their, their track record isn't the best. So they've had uh, probably a, a more mixed track record on actually achieving that. But again, 94 was the, the exception perhaps to that. Although in that period of time, you also saw a lot of volatility in terms of the financial markets and, and some obviously some high profile kind of financial accidents, if you will. And I'm kind of beginning to wonder if there might be another situation here where even if things can stay somewhat strong from the economic perspective, if the odds of a financial accident happening uh, might occur again. And we have to kind of keep our eye on a lot of things to try and figure out what that might be. That those things are really hard to predict. Nobody knows what they, um, where, they, where they might service next. Some people are pointing to the currency markets. You've seen the dollar, for example, spike significantly higher in the past couple of weeks or so, maybe in reflection of, of some of these, these tensions, if you will. I don't know, Rajiv, if you've got any thoughts on that or if you kind of see anything uh, in your, from your world in terms of where that might surface. But I think we have to keep our eyes open to some, some bumpiness in, in, in the terms of not necessarily an economic event, but more of a financial event. What do you think about that? I would agree with that, George. I think that uh, we definitely have to keep our eyes open for that uh, for that event that could happen, a uh, financial event. Uh, we have seen, uh, you know, even in some of the markets that we have within fixed income, we've seen this move towards taking risk off the table in anticipation of an event like that to happen. We're seeing a move for higher quality bonds, higher quality investments, uh, kind of a rotation uh, out of some of the more riskier assets. Even as yields move higher and maybe some of these valuations are starting to look attractive, 
there is still this notion that if the Fed doesn't get it right and we do pull growth down and we do have a recession, what are those uh, securities that you really want in your portfolio at that point? And I think many investors right now are thinking up in quality trades in anticipation of what we may have seen in the past, where those were the securities that kind of insulated you against some of these adverse events. So as we talk about some of that portfolio construction, Rajiv, when we talk about stocks versus bonds, I think it's an opportunity for us to share with some of our audience members, George, uh, what are your thoughts on the concept of correlation? Where have we seen it? Again, the correlation between different asset classes within portfolio construction. Where have we seen it over history and where have we seen it recently? What are the differences and, and what do you think that means for overall portfolio construction in light of the Fed and in light of correlation? Yeah, so to break it down, Ryan, I think when you when you construct a portfolio to make it really effective, you really kind of have three big inputs. Uh, you think about the return of various asset classes. You know, what do you think stocks or bonds will earn over a long period of time? Secondly, you think about maybe the volatility or the variability of those returns. How, how volatile are they? And then thirdly, as you mentioned, correlation is a key component too. And that just refers to you know, how the assets are related to each other. Um, within correlation, there's a couple of ways you can think about that. Uh, sometimes things move together. That's called positive correlation. Sometimes there's no relationship or, or zero correlation. And then thirdly, we have negative correlation that people kind of focus on. And that's commonly thought as being maybe the best kind of correlation when you build portfolios. When you want to have asset classes or things in your portfolio, you know, when one thing zigs, the other thing zags a little bit to try and minimize the blow uh, in terms of maybe some downside volatility. So I'm glad you brought it up because it's really interesting to us. And up until the last year or so, the last couple of decades were defined by the situation where we had pretty low and stable inflation. You know, inflation was kind of averaging call it one and a half or so percent. And it was in a pretty narrow range. It didn't really get above, you know, it was maybe plus one or minus one around that, uh, that average. And then if you look back even further, however, inflation was much higher and it's also much more volatile. I mean, inflation in the previous four decades averaged about four, 4%, so maybe two X of where it has been in the last 20 years, but the range was significantly wide. And I bring that up because, you know, in that period of time in the last, in the first four years, and if you will, kind of from the, call it 1940s to the 1980s, roughly or so, we saw the situation where bond prices and stock prices, you know, essentially kind of didn't always uh, perform, to, well, they performed together and they didn't really have that diversification benefit. So what we saw in the last 20 years, however, where, where, where inflation was fairly low, you know, essentially there was kind of a built-in hedge where people, if they were concerned about equity market risk, they could essentially put some of their money in, in, into bonds to provide some diversification benefit. And what we've seen this year, however, is that that relationship is flipped again, where just year to date, roughly speaking, stocks are down about 10% or so um, this year. And bond prices, and we can measure this in a couple of different ways, but bond prices are down also about 10%. So you haven't seen that, that diversification benefit play out that we saw in the previous 20 years. And I think people need to be aware of that. So what would one what, what do we think we should do when their correlations don't provide the diversification that we might have expected, George, historically, like you just mentioned, year to date with stocks and bonds? Are there other things that we can think about from a portfolio perspective that might help? It can. And, and then no one knows if this trend is going to continue. And I think a lot of it depends on what happens with inflation next. And you know, again, as we said, some of the data points suggest inflation might be peaking, but stay somewhat elevated. So I think you know what you want to be thinking about is maybe additional tools that you can use to really round out and maybe even enhance the diversification of your portfolio um, if we're likely to be in this new regime as we, we kind of think we might be. So there are things like um, low volatility alternative strategies. Um, there are some liquid alternative strategies uh, that have been somewhat effective. 
Private real estate and real assets are also things that have been added as well. Um, in this environment of high inflation, those things have, have played out fairly well. And I continue to think that might be a way to hedge some of this uncertainty and also provide some diversification to somebody's portfolio. So Rajiv, on the fixed income side, as yields continue to increase, there may be a time for folks that have cash parked on the sideline to re-enter the fixed income markets. What are your thoughts in that area? It's a great question, Brian. I, I think that, you know, we're talking about correlations and it does seem like those were glory days when uh, there were uh, correlations that made sense between fixed income and equities. And now they both are moving in the same direction. But one of the things I would mention and along the lines of your question is you look at the high grade index, it's down about 4.9% this month alone. That's the worst total return since March 2020 and the fifth straight month of declines. What happens at this point is you start seeing yields that you haven't seen in this market, especially in corporate bonds. Uh, that look that are starting to look attractive. Uh, we have not seen attractive valuations in a very long time in fixed income as rates were so low. Now with rates moving higher, you will start seeing those investors that are going to get interested in uh, in taking advantage of some of these rates, especially as we mentioned before, the high quality trade. If you see some high quality, very well capitalized firms, issuers out there with yields that you haven't seen for a while, I could imagine foreign investors getting involved and U.S. domestic investors getting involved as well. That could provide some support, especially for asset classes like high grade and high yield, uh, which could see some valuations that look attractive. George and Rajiv, thanks for providing your insights. We appreciate it. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today. Be sure to subscribe to the Key Wealth Matters podcast through your favorite podcast app. As always, past performance is no guarantee of future results, and we know your financial situation is personal to you. So reach out to your relationship manager, portfolio strategist, or advisor for more information. And we'll catch up with you next week to see how the world and the markets have changed and provide those keys to help you achieve your financial success. The Key Wealth Matters podcast is produced by the Key Wealth Institute. The Key Wealth Institute is comprised of a collection of financial professionals representing key entities, including key private bank, key bank institutional advisors, and key investment services. Any opinions, projections, or recommendations contained herein are subject to change without notice and are not intended as individual investment advice. This material is presented for informational purposes only and should not be construed as individual tax or financial advice. Bank and trust products are offered by Key Bank National Association, member FDIC, and equal housing lender. Key ba private bank and key bank institutional advisors are part of key bank. Investment products, brokerage, and investment advisory services are offered through Key Investment Services, LLC, or KISS, member FINRA, SIPC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Insurance products are offered through Key Corp Insurance Agency, USA, or KIA. KIS and KIA are affiliated with Key Bank. Investment and insurance products are not FDIC insured, not bank guaranteed, may lose value, not a deposit, not insured by any federal or state government agency. KeyBank and its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. Individuals should consult their personal tax advisor before making any tax-related investment decisions. This content is copyrighted by KeyCorp 2021.